Coming up today, what we know about how coronavirus attacks your body, how the school shutdown will affect kids for years to come, and why we're entering the golden era of nepotism. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Katwala. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when a man in Singapore was sentenced to death via Zoom. Punithan Giyasan, 37, was charged for his role in a drug deal which took place in 2011. It's the first time Singapore has sentenced someone to death via Zoom. This is also the week when Apple released iOS 13.5, an update to its mobile operating system that includes support for the contact tracing notification system that it has developed in conjunction with Google. And it also includes improvements to Face ID so that it works better if you're wearing a face mask. Finally, this week, SoftBank's chief executive compared himself to misunderstood Jesus Christ as he defended a £13 billion annual loss in the company. Masayoshi Son also used slides in a presentation to press and investors that featured a unicorn flying over a coronavirus ravine to symbolise companies that will survive the economic downturn caused by the pandemic. SoftBank's presentation slides are a fascinating kind of art. This isn't the first time that people have been wowed by their graphical splendour. No, they're fabulous. They really are. In every possible way, genuinely. I encourage everyone to seek seek out these slides. Um, I think a few people published them in full and SoftBank's presentation is available on its corporate website somewhere. It's uh, well worth looking at just for curiosity alone. Um, After the podcast pub quiz last week when we had all of the podcast family on board this week we're back to just three of us um we hope the change isn't too shocking uh, let's press on what did you learn this week Amit? i learned about sloths and the claws of sloths uh, which is a word that i can't really say that that clearly so this is going to be a bit of a challenge anyway the big creatures that live in trees you know very sleepy looking Uh, They have claws that work the opposite way to the human hand. So while our hands are open by default and we have to exert effort to contract them, a sloth's claws do the opposite so that they're closed by default and they have to exert effort to open them. This is so they don't fall out of trees while they're sleeping. Um, I also have another bonus fun sloth fact. Uh, The claws, um, their long claws aren't actually nails like fingernails or other species. So they're kind of, they're not attached to the top of the, the finger. They're actually bone that kind of grows out from within the claw itself. Speaking of animals that live in trees, Amit, um, you should probably give us a magpie update. Yeah, so there was a right set to the other day where the magpies were chasing, uh, looked look, look to me like they were chasing off uh, some blackbirds that were harassing their nest. But then I googled it and it turns out that magpies actually often uh, kill blackbirds and eat their young. So uh, I may have picked the wrong side here. Mm, but I think we're all firmly on Team Magpie. Yes, although the more I learn about them, the, the less uh, less happy I am about that, I've got to be honest. The, uh, have you, had, have you uh, had a sighting of the chicks yet? No, not yet, no. I don't um, I don't know how long they stay in the nest for, but and it's, it's very kind of dense, so it's very hard to see. And I think my, I think if I were to climb the tree to try and get a closer look, that would probably be violating some sort of uh, ethical code. So we'll have to wait and see. We'll check in again next week for the latest on the magpies. Natasha, what did you learn this week? 
I learned because it's quite it's been quite warm this week and I love tea um I learned something that's uh, I hope scientifically uh, accurate uh basically I, I was asking whether the uh drinking of tea can cool you down when it's hot because I had I remember something vaguely in my mind that people that live in the desert drink tea because it kind of makes you hot on the inside so you're hot like the outside I don't know anyway so I found a 2012 study that proved that yes drinking hot tea will cool you down but only if there's a nice breeze so basically when you drink something hot you sweat more sweat absorbs the body's heat and then evaporates into the air taking the heat with it but for the sweat-based reduction in temperature to exceed the increase due to the hot drink you need to let all of the sweat evaporate and that means that if you're in a hot humid room like I am or if you're wearing long sleeves and trousers hot tea is not going to work and I tested that theory and it's true I almost died of heat. <laughs> So you've been drinking tea in different kinds of outfits to work out the sweat to cooling ratio. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you count sort of your shorts and you, I, I wasn't like long sleeved, you know, big mm. sort of sweater situation, but it's, it is genuinely humid in here, I found. And I, it just wasn't the climate for, for tea. There's, there's some sort of opportunity for a, a shared Google spreadsheet where we each record our different responses to drinking hot beverages in different outfits. Uh, to work out more scientifically what uh, the actual effect is. Why not? Just do don't do it? it. Don't do it. That's my recommendation. I genuinely thought do. it's like lava. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I learned this week that Tinder had its busiest day ever on the 29th of March when there were 3 billion swipes worldwide. The company says it's experienced a dramatic shift in how people behave on its platform as a result of the global lockdown. Why is that? It didn't... On the Why? Yeah. Uh, it was a Sunday. So Don't know. Like nothing else to do. I guess one day's got to be busier than all the others. I guess so. It just happened to be Sunday. Uh, some good trivia there. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed all the trivia that we sent your way on the last edition of the podcast. Um, thanks again to everyone that joined us for the live recording of that. And we hope that you enjoyed listening back to it if you were only tuning in for the recorded show that we put out as a normal podcast. Do let us know if that was something that you thought worked as a recorded show. We think it went pretty well um, and we're going to look to do some more in the future. But your feedback, as ever, is invaluable. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Let us know what we could do differently on the pub quiz if we should do it as a standalone thing get in touch let us know and we'll make some plans for the future our first story this week is a bit of a difficult one so this week we published an exhaustive look into how coronavirus attacks the human body if you're suffering from anxiety or think this section might upset you then you should skip ahead about 10 to 15 minutes when we'll have moved on to another topic now, there might have been 5 million confirmed cases of coronavirus around the world, but there's still so much that we don't know about it. And one of the most important areas of research is looking at how, in the most serious cases, it completely takes over the human body. So for most people, COVID-19 is a mild, slight fever and a dry cough. But for a small number of patients who become critically ill, that's around 6% of confirmed cases, COVID-19 warps into something that's frighteningly lethal. In the UK, a third of patients who are taken to hospital with coronavirus end up being killed by it. Simply put, as health officials have been saying for months, 
this isn't a bit like flu. And with each, each passing day, we're understanding more and more about how brutal this disease is. It fills lungs with cheesy gunk, drowning its victims. Patients urinate blood, they suffer strokes. In some cases, COVID-19 appears to attack the brain and stop you from breathing. One intensive care doctor we spoke to said it was unlike anything they've seen before. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this has become become kind of a bit of a theme of coronavirus over the last couple of months in the sense that I think when it started out, we all thought it was a respiratory disease, you know, like SARS, like MERS, you know, dangerous, but kind of within the realm of things we've seen before. But actually what we've seen is that, like, as you've just outlined it, attacks the body in a bunch of different ways and I think partly that's partly because we just don't know anything about this disease so you know we're coming from a position of knowing nothing so everything we learn is you know a surprise and things that maybe would have been you know a minor mention for a disease that we already know about get kind of you know magnified because there's so much attention on it but what kind of things have we seen in intensive care you know what that people have been suffering from? Yeah so a lot of the misunderstanding around the seriousness of COVID-19 might come from the mild symptoms that most of us will experience. You'll have a tight chest, you'll cough, you'll have a bit of a fever. It feels like a cold or a flu kind of thing. But for people who end up in intensive care, it's almost anything but. Yes, it goes after your lungs, but it also really, really goes through your body in a very, very brutal way. So as I said, some patients urinate blood, some people complain of really severe heartburn, some people lose their sense of smell and taste. In Beijing, a 56-year-old man developed brain inflammation, his face began to twitch and he hiccuped uncontrollably. In the US, a 71-year-old woman developed back pain, vomiting and bloody diarrhea. Only on her fourth day in hospital did she begin to cough and was subsequently found to have COVID-19. A neurosurgeon at Mount Sinai Health System in New York treated five patients with sudden strokes, all were under the age of 50 and had either mild symptoms of COVID-19 or no symptoms at all. Some bodies are laced with blood clots and patients are hit with heart attacks, strokes and kidney failure. This is not a respiratory illness, or at least in intensive care, it manifests in all sorts of strange ways. It's really interesting because over the past um, week, obviously they, it's been decided that um, losing your sense of smell and your sense of taste and now some of the symptoms, official symptoms of coronavirus, which we, we hadn't heard before, even though you had people saying for weeks, I've lost my sense of taste. I don't know if this is a symptom or not. Do I have it? And the interesting thing is when we looked at the first few cases um, of this happening, there were people that didn't have any symptoms at all. Um, but, but now people are saying six weeks after the fact, they still have chest pain, it still hurts when they breathe. It's it seems like it's there's there's a lot of potential for for people to get scared um, if they have something else that's quite similar that it might end up being coronavirus and they just they just don't know at that point. So this must make treating people in the ICU really difficult, right? Because the symptoms are very varied and it's, it's so severe and you don't really know if it's going to develop into something or if it's just something unrelated, right? Yeah, absolutely. The symptoms that you can end up with in intensive care are nothing like. The symptoms of a respiratory illness. So to give one example, that COVID-19 seemingly attacks the kidneys is a really big area of concern. So according to a preliminary study out of Wuhan in China, 20% of patients suffer from this kidney complication. More than half of the people hospitalized because of COVID-19 have blood or protein, uh, blood or protein in their urine, which indicates kidney damage. And people with acute kidney injury may be five times as likely to die from COVID-19 than patients without it. 
So patients are hooked up to dialysis machines to try and take the strain off their failing kidneys. But weirdly, many COVID-19 patients in intensive care are also riddled with blood clots. And the way that dialysis machines work is not compatible with blood clots. They clot up the machine, filters have to be changed, and it all gets very, very complicated and precarious. So there have been reports of people with purple rashes, swollen legs, clogged catheters. Studies from the Netherlands and France suggest that clots appear in 20 to 30% of critically ill COVID-19 patients. And a group in Hamburg carried out autopsies on 12 COVID-19 patients and found evidence of blood clotting problems, including clots in the lungs and the legs. And in all 12 cases, the cause of death was found from the lungs or the heart. Further, a team from UCL Queen Square Institute of Neurology have shown that COVID-19 may form clots within the brain, leading to strokes, which is another thing we're seeing in an awful lot of ICU patients who end up having COVID-19. Clots in the lungs make ventilators yes, less, less useful, but clots in the brain are deadly, particularly severe strokes. You can end up with all sorts of very, very severe complications very very quickly and if you can't get people on a ventilator if you can't get people on dialysis machines then their organs start to fail so i mean given that doctors have to deal with this kind of vast array of different symptoms um and also i guess symptoms that kind of have like very different treatments like if your blood's clotting generally be put on blood thinners but actually that might have an impact on how much oxygen your blood's be able to carry so there's like kind of contradicting things that make it really really difficult to treat some of these conditions so what what is actually working um, and i know that, that the prognosis for a, a patient that goes into intensive care isn't great but like for those that do make out and recover like what what are doctors using to kind of help those people yeah so for some people your immune system does eventually get on top of it and that's the best hope with no medical treatment per se there's there's no there's no drug there's no vaccine um, we're really relying on ventilation, intubation, and weirdly, the simple but somewhat precarious process of flipping. So faced with these really, really puzzling symptoms, doctors have settled on a really unusual form of treatment. So flipping COVID-19 patients onto their stomachs, this is a technique known as proning, appears to ease chest congestion. This was found fairly early on in China and this advice was passed all around the world and has since been common practice in intensive care. So the logistics of it are really, really intense. So you've got a whole team of people who have to flip a patient who's usually unconscious and hooked up to life support machines. So you're flipping them from their back onto their stomach. And it seems that patients really, really benefit from this maneuver, more so than they really should. And we don't really understand why. It gives their lungs um, more room to breathe. It eases the pressure on them. But annoyingly, what can often happen is because the way that coronavirus attacks the human body is so severe, our body's own immune response can go into overdrive. And this is something that's known as a cytokine storm. And it's basically an immune system overreaction. So the storm takes its name from the protein that's released by the body to coordinate its response to an infection. And traces of these cytokines can be measured in the blood after the fact. So we know that this is happening in patients who die from COVID-19. So when a pathogen like COVID-19 enters the blood, cytokines attract immune cells to the point of the infection to destroy the intruder. It's an essential response. It brings about inflammation. And that's how your body goes about healing. Yet for some people, this response grows completely out of control. So the excess cytokines swarm on the location and 
excess immune cells follow. So as a result, the body is destroyed along with the virus. So patients appear to get better because their immune system is taking the virus out, but then it just keeps on going crazier and crazier. Your blood pressure drops and you die. And this is a particularly acute problem amongst younger people, mostly men and disproportionately from BAME backgrounds. So cytokine storms aren't particularly new. Um, we see them in all sorts of um, uh, immune responses to viruses. But because there are so many cases of coronavirus and this virus is seemingly so lethal, we're getting an awful lot of records of it occurring on death certificates. This is really weird because I know that there was obviously... Um, there's obviously a lot of data out there now about how affected uh, people from ethnic minorities are um, at the moment. And, and there seems to be no real reason why um, bodies would re respond that way. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you could survive coronavirus technically, but your own body could kill you. I mean, we've seen obviously plagues before. We've seen, uh, you know, influenza before, uh, you know, Spanish flu, etc. But it, it, this, the combination of the fact that, you know, any small error, you know, touching something, you know, breathing in something could give you coronavirus. It's really easy to get it. Plus the fact it's so aggressive. And you add on the fact that even, even if your body does respond to it, it could go into overdrive and still you could end up dead. It's, this is, this is a, a tremendous situation. It's, it's very, very horrible. Why, why is, why is COVID-19 so unbelievably brutal compared to anything else that we've ever seen in history? Why is, why is this so bad? Yeah, and um, Matt Reynolds, when he's been speaking about uh, COVID-19 on the podcast over the last several weeks, has, has made quite clear it's, it's brutal in people it's brutal against, but we've still got this real complication of for most people who spread it, it doesn't have severe symptoms at all. So while researching and, and reading a story like this might be quite triggering for people's anxiety. It is worth remembering that it's a very, very small number of people who end up in intensive care with these kinds of symptoms. But the problem is that because so many people are being infected, that number is quite high. And the reason behind some of the complications we think, we suspect, is genetics. There's something in people's genomes that is leading them to have a more severe or complicated response to COVID-19. But that kind of data is going to be very, very difficult to pin down and it's going to take an awful long time to do the research on. But another reason that we suspect that COVID-19 might be so devastating is the way that it causes the disease. So the virus that causes the disease, SARS-CoV-2, we know that it enters human cells by binding to a particular receptor called the ACE2. This is usually responsible for regulating blood pressure. And then the virus replicates itself. So these receptors are common in the upper respiratory tract where the virus first makes its home, but they're also found in the lungs, the heart, the kidney and the intestine. And the virus may migrate from its initial building sites to other areas around the body. So we've we're seeing it attack ACE2 receptors across the human body. So ACE2 receptors may also help the virus reach as far as the brain. And we're seeing patients with strokes or patients who seemingly stop breathing because their brain just turns off the function that allows them to breathe. All of this is unproven, but it does appear to be something that's happening. But there's an awful lot more research to be done. So traces of 
SARS-CoV-2 virus have been detected in patient's spinal fluid. So again, that detects, that suggests that something is happening in the brain. And a study of 214 patients with coronavirus neurologic symptoms were seen in 36.4% of patients and were even more common in those with a severe infection, suggesting again that COVID-19 is making its way to the brain. So as we've said, some COVID-19 patients suffer from strokes, seizures, loss of taste and smell, erratic breathing or heart rhythms or something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is where the body's immune system attacks the nerves. And this could all be explained by the virus going after the brain. But as I said, this remains really, really early days for understanding how this virus behaves. And there simply isn't enough evidence to draw firm conclusions about how COVID-19 is attacking the body. I wonder like to what extent this is coronavirus being you know brutal or to the extent to which it's you know coronaviruses more generally just being studied to a, a far greater degree than they would have been in previous epidemics like obviously SARS you know kind of a lot of work kind of began on that and then when SARS kind of went away after a little while we kind of stopped doing the research I wonder how many of these effects are you know common to all coronaviruses um you know all viruses in this family and we, we just didn't know until now because we'd never studied them in that much depth and or to what extent this particular strain is particularly virulent and particularly dangerous yeah absolutely and there's a number of symptoms here that are not to be too blunt a symptom of dying the process of dying is incredibly brutal on the human body and all sorts of weird and wonderful things happen as we approach death so another thing that we did for the story is we spoke to a pathologist who's looking at the bodies at the end of their life and seeing how coronavirus has gone through them and he was very very clear that the most brutal demonstration of coronavirus's power is in the lungs. So looking at the lungs, pathologists see something that's closer to the consistency of liver. And if you think lungs are normally like sort of fleshy sacs, being the consistency of liver kind of, well, everyone knows what liver is. It's sort of hard and spongy and thick. So this is completely changing the makeup of our lungs and, and drowning us effectively. But it's all across the body that coronavirus does these strange things. And that suggests that it is a particularly brutal disease. So in less severe infections like pneumonia, the lung might be a bit patchy. So there'll be these glass opacities revealed on x-rays. But if you x-ray the lungs of someone with COVID-19 who has passed away, you just see this cheese where there should be space for air. And this severity reveals a really, really blunt truth that we're going to be faced with for quite a while with COVID-19. We do not have a treatment for it. Doctors can support failing organs with ventilators and dialysis machines, but against the virus itself, they're completely empty-handed. So, as we've said, for people who end up in intensive care, the prognosis is incredibly bad, and our tools to help them are still incredibly untargeted. It's a really, really depressing read, um, but I think it's quite an important one um, as we all get to grips with the reality of COVID-19. Um, we'll include it in the show notes. Do go and check it out because there's tons of detail that we've not been able to get into on the podcast. Um, and do let us know any thoughts on that story, on your experiences of the disease, anything you want to share with us, podcast at wired.co.uk. Our second story this week is being brought about by some people returning to the office, some people returning to their places of work, but an awful lot of people continuing to work remotely. And we're seeing potentially some interesting dynamics 
come about as a result of that, Natasha? Yeah, so um, the the story that we are, wor- are working on this week is basically about nepotism and favouritism and how coronavirus is basically ushering in a new golden age of it. So uh, the, the idea that networking still only happens in the smoke-filled rooms of, of men-only private members club may have thankfully almost died a death. But to get ahead in the business world, you still need to know the right people. And having the chance to hobnob with like-minded people at parties, networking events and conferences to get ahead is so important that in the UK alone it generated over £32.1 billion in 2015. But now that coronavirus has effectively locked us in our homes and all those events and conferences that would allow us to meet new people have been cancelled, those that rely on networking to make business deals and sales will be forced to look through their existing contact books and could come up empty-handed. The same goes for people who need to network internally to get ahead during a time of uncertainty. So if you've known your boss for 15 years, you're more likely to have her or his attention if you propose an idea and have more confidence approaching them with a problem. If you've only just started working and you don't have the right internal connections, you're at a distinct disadvantage. So uh, no surprises about which uh, generation is going to lose out from this the most. (laughs) Yeah, basically it means if you're over 40 and you've got some kind of uh, seniority in your job and years of experience behind you, you've never been in a better position to put some distance between yourself and younger, less experienced peers and jobs that require you to press the flesh. And I, I hate that term, but it's basically that require you to meet people as part of your job or persuade people to do stuff for you as part of your job. So even though people are using Zoom and email to introduce themselves and set up meetings during the pandemic, it still can't compare to picking up the phone and calling a long-standing contact for a favour. Within your own company, there's also a massive advantage, especially especially now that companies are rethinking their own headcounts and future business investments, who the hell is going to want to get rid of the person with all the valuable business contacts? No one. If you're someone who already has proven to be a trusted pair of hands, it's likely that your boss will hand you more responsibility, better contracts and more of a senior position in the team. And this is something that we're feeling in a small way as quite a close-knit team that's used to being in an office together and having lots of like people will go out for lunches or go for a walk around the park um, to, to talk about a story or we'll go to the pub after work and replicating those kinds of discussions that have that happened spontaneously in an office setup is, is really, really difficult remotely. Mm-hmm. And what you found, Natasha, is that people who are more likely to have the ear of senior management are more likely to benefit from a situation where communicating is more difficult. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, we're seeing the trend towards uh, some people returning to work, but the office-based um, roles still will predominantly continue at home. And I, I don't know if this is a scientific fact necessarily, but um, more people in management are willing to go back to work, it seems, uh, than, than those in lower um, roles because they're closer to the work office, because you know they can afford to do so, because they want to do so. And so the, the first wave of people coming back could very well be the people in management who will be able to talk to each other, have face-to-face meetings, whether in sort of social distancing or not, depending on what they decide to do. And you might be left out. So that, there's a problem there, definitely. But, but the people who are working from home on Zoom, um, it, it's, it's impossible to meet people the way it was before. So it's a difficulty, if you're trying to meet people externally at conferences, the difficulty there was not meeting people because you can meet people all the time, but meeting the right people. So often you're presented with a sea of people who you don't really want to meet or really care about at all. And that's why um, you've got a lot of a trend in the US and in the UK for chief executives to basically set up their own private thing where people 
who are very early on in their careers who need to meet them they just won't have access so it's it, it'll be more like a sort of desperate business card swapping situation if you go to many big conferences now there's no way you're going to have a one-on-one um with with anyone that you actually need to I just want to play devil's advocate here a bit. Um, I hate networking in person. Like I just, I'm just, I'm very bad at it. And, and the thought of like going up to someone I don't know at a conference still, even yeah. now just sort of fills me with this sort of terrible anxiety. Um, could you argue that this is actually going to be better in some ways because it, it removes that kind of geog- geographical restriction? So like particularly in our industry, you know, a lot of people get their start by, you know, working uh, for very low pay um, or even unpaid in, in certain professions, you know, um, you know, and, and, you know, sleeping on someone's floor and people that can live in London already or people that live in cities already have a big advantage. Could there be a positive side to this? Not really, because um, just just the same as you can kind of, I mean, if, if you're quite savvy, you know, you, you try to identify the people who are on the guest list uh, if you're going to an event or going to a conference. If, if there's anyone good on there, those are the people that you want to target. So you've made an action plan before. Now all of those meetings, all of those events aren't happening. They might become webinars or they might end up being sort of individual phone calls or Zoom calls where you can't really get in. You can't casually say, oh, by the way, I'm at it, you know, lovely to meet you, etc. It just it just won't happen. And so you're, you're locked out of that side of things completely rather than having a very slim chance of anyone wanting to pay attention to you if you're in your first few years of a sales job or a marketing job or trying to build your contacts book you you will have no opportunity whatsoever no one is really answering uh, cold calling or emails um, as as far as I'm aware (laughs) throughout this crisis because you're still busy and you don't you don't really want to give anyone the time of day so the problem here is also that that the playing field has never really been level for men and women or ethnic minorities so research from um, years ago followed 1,815 men and women uh, who are Wall Street analysts with the same number of school-based connections and they found that men were more likely to get professional help from their contacts than women and that racial biases and people who um, you know care about age and weight and other factors were also influential in the kind of result that they would have with their contacts so it's it's going to be very much um, easier for a certain type of person to pick up the call pick up the phone and give someone a call and say I've known you for 15 years can you give me a bit of a boost can I have a bit of a sale you know can I can I have some help from you in this time of crisis than it is for someone to pick up the, the phone and say I don't know you at all I would have loved to have met you at this conference but you didn't go because coronavirus cancelled it can we have a chat because they'll they'll say no I don't know who you are I don't want to do it so um this 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 kind of thing in the business world there's always been nepotism and bias within businesses as well so this this is all kind of linked together because whether it's unconscious or otherwise if you do well in business a lot of the time it is because of the kind of people that you that you know it's no coincidence that there's still more men called David than women chief executives in the FTSE 100 um and this is again why places like private members clubs are still really popular and they were still you know burgeoning before the before the coronavirus crisis happened in 2017 I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was an outcry because the male members of the Garrett Club in London, which is still one of the most exclusive members-only male clubs in the UK, had tacked a list under a curtain in the grand uh, staircase that basically had names of loads of people who didn't want to accept women into their club. Now, this is a place where you had really high, high-level high senior politicians, broadcasters, public figures that would just kind of walk around and talk to each other at the bar, you know, have a drink, sit down in the lounge, and they talked to each other casually. This was kind of 
of the same thing as a private golf club if you go with your with your boss to go golfing etc and it, it completely isolated people who didn't have who weren't part of a, a significant sort of social um class or women just just through the virtue of who they are and so so there was a huge outcry about that and literally nothing happened nothing changed but if you look at what's going on right now, it's the same situation only taken to a virtual level. So if you know those people already, if you have connections, that those exact private conversations that other people just simply don't have access to are happening all the time now. And the longer this lockdown um, is, the worse it's going to be basically for everyone else. Just as the coronavirus is an accelerator for change, all across society and the economy. It's also an accelerator for nepotistic webinars, um, which is something I didn't expect to be saying at the beginning of this year. Podcast at wired.co.uk. What's that? Men's only webinars. Men's only webinars, <laughs> yes. With men's only passwords. Don't give them any Podcast ideas. at wired.co.uk. Um, if your business is starting to return to work and you're experiencing these strange dynamics between those that are able to socially distance press the flesh and those that are stuck on Zoom and phone calls and email. What ways can we come up with to help get around this? Because there is going to be the issue of us shrinking our social circles potentially for quite some time. So how can we make sure that nepotism and bias isn't baked into our new social norm? Podcast at wire.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else we talked about on this week's show. Our third and final story before we all melt, because it is getting quite warm in our small rooms where we're recording this. Amit, schools are set to reopen in England from June the 1st. But the shutdown isn't going to go away and it's going to cause some lasting damage. Yeah, so even if schools do reopen, um, and even then it's only for some years, but even if they do reopen on June the 1st, uh, some people I've spoken to are quite sceptical about that. Um, there's the, you know, this is still a massive amount of school that children have missed. Um, and I guess parents and the government have got to kind of balance the concerns about the virus and spreading the virus with the impact that the continued shutdown is going to have on their children. Um so we've been looking at how, uh, you know, kind of predicting what impact the school shutdown is going to have and comparing uh, this to kind of previous uh, shutdowns of schools caused by things like natural disasters. Um, and unfortunately, the comparisons don't look very good. So what have researchers found? So it's quite unusual, obviously, for schools to be shut down for this long. So one uh, common comparison is with Hurricane Katrina in the States in 2005, which... Um, displaced an estimated 372,000 children from their homes and destroyed more than 100 public schools. So um, although those displaced students eventually found new schools after the floodwaters receded, the impact of the disaster lingered. Some children showed increased signs of anxiety, depression and post-traumatic stress long after the event. Uh, Five years later, a study found that more than a third of the children who had been displaced were at least a year behind their peers academically. Um, and that's the case no matter like, kind of what the nature of the disruption. So uh, research in Australia looked at the Black Saturday bushfires in 2009 and found that children from those affected areas performed worse than their peers uh, in both literacy and numeracy tests for years after the event. Um, now, those are relatively short shutdowns. So, you know, if you, like within you know 10 weeks or so, the kids were back at school getting some form of education, even, although, even though it may not have been the same school they were going to before. Um, there's kind of a lack of research on like more extended school, school disruptions like the ones we've seen um, with coronavirus. But um, a 2019 study in Argentina uh, 
looked at people who had missed 90 days of school in the 80s and 90s due to teacher strikes uh, and it found that those students were less likely to earn a degree, they were more likely to be unemployed and they earned 2-3% less on average than those from areas that were less impacted by those strikes. But so, I mean, obviously the, the lockdown might have lasted longer than some of these disasters, but, but children are still learning on Zoom, right? So it's not like they're um, sort of having a prolonged holiday, despite what I might be hearing outside in the gardens of my <laughs> neighbours. <laughs> they're still sort of supposed to be learning and supposed to be keeping up with the curriculum, right? Yeah. Um, so although that, is, you know, although that is the case, a lot of schools are doing kind of Zoom lessons. It doesn't really split evenly across uh kind of the socioeconomic spectrum. So um, according to survey data from the Sutton Trust and a teacher polling app called TeacherTap, um, private school students are twice as likely as state school school students to be accessing online lessons every day. Uh, Working class students are spending less time studying than than, um, middle class students and they've seen a more significant drop in the quality of their work. Uh, Some data shows that 55% of teachers in disadvantaged areas felt that the children were getting an hour or less of education per day. And half of private school kids are getting online lessons from nine to three every day, but only that's less than 10% for state schools. So there's this conception that, yeah, everyone is just doing lessons over Zoom. If your kids go to private school, maybe that's the case. But if they go to state school, they're, they're pretty much on their own. And if you're still trying to work while kind of homeschooling your kids, then that's a real challenge. And it's not just school, is it? So the lockdown is meaning that many children are going to be losing parents and grandparents before their time they're going to be aware that something very dangerous and nasty is happening in the world and it can often be quite easy to dismiss the idea that children understand what's what's going on and that it has a profound emotional and psychological impact on them but there's strong evidence to suggest that the way that their behavior will change as a result of this crisis is going to have really really damaging effects as well yeah, it's really hard to like tease out what's, you know, if there's an if there's a negative impact on their, you know, academic performance or their economic performance, you know, it's really difficult to tease out what's because the school was shut and what's down to the fact that the reason the school was shut, you know, the, the global pandemic, right? Like that's bound to have an impact. Um, so, you know, although, so after Katrina, there was problems of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress. Young children, particularly those in preschool, were very dysregulated in their behaviour. Um they show signs of kind of regression, so showing behaviours expected of younger children, maybe speech delays, they might become withdrawn or difficult to manage, they might have problems sleeping. Um, so, it, and it's not because, you know, it, it, because because they're kind of worried about the disease, maybe, or because they're worried about some of the knock-on effects of the disease. So, you know, your parents or your grandparents might not get ill but you know they might lose their job or they might be worried about money or they might be furloughed you know there might be stress caused in people's relationships because they're trapped in the house and all this kind of stuff can really have an impact on the mental health of children within those family units um research at the university of oxford has already shown that the pandemic is causing anxiety among children for instance and so what can be done to stop that from happening i mean is there anything that anyone around these children can do to either you know, ameliorate or, or stop them from, you know, feeling really sad or even developing, you know, anxiety or mental health issues if they feel like this situation is, is too overwhelming for them? So um, education is, is really important. So like kind of educating children on the risks can help them ease anxiety as long as you do it in a kind of sensible and I guess, um, you know, uh, non-sensationalist uh, manner. Um, 
there's also some evidence that like the more personalized learning brought on by the pandemic could help some children with subjects so if you are getting homeschooled you are getting kind of one-on-one attention which for some kids particularly if you go to a, a school with like really big class sizes um you know that might actually be really helpful even if it's not from a trained teacher you know even if your parents are spending more time with you kind of going through stuff that you find difficult that could help so um exam results actually improved after the 2011 earthquakes in New Zealand, for example, um, as a result of this this um, effect. Um, but one of the best ways to help children, according to researchers in Australia, is to kind of empower them in the recovery effort to make them feel like they've got some control over what is a very kind of chaotic time. So that could be anything from, so after Katrina, they kind of, uh, school children help to kind of plant community gardens and kind of help kind of rebuild the community in a certain way, you know, as much as they could. Um, things like, you know, the chalk messages you see on pavements and kind of signs um, thanking the NHS and windows, this kind of gives children a way to, I guess, feel like they've got some measure of control or they've got some measure of uh, impact on what's going on. They, they have a part to play in the world and that makes it more understandable and less anxiety inducing and that can make a big difference. And it's really important that that kind of work continues as we go through these very, very unprecedented times that children are given agency over the impact that they have on the world um, it'd be interesting to know what your local communities are doing what what your families and, and friendship groups are, are doing to help get kids through this crisis is it getting them involved in community projects is it educating them in different ways changing their relationship with nature or with their peers podcast at wired.co.uk with anything that you'd like to let us know on that or anything else that we talked about on the show this week. We'll end the show as we always do with a few of your emails. Uh, First up, Phil writes in in reference to my Hawaiian pizza fact, which is that Hawaiian pizzas were invented in Canada. It turns out that someone has carried out a deeper dive into the origins of the Hawaiian pizza. It's on an episode of John Green's podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed. Apparently it's short, informative and amusing. He says, thanks for keeping the show on the road during lockdown, although he can't listen to all of it on his current commute to the back room. So he has to carve out some time for podcasts in different ways. Well, thanks for listening, Phil, and thanks for letting us know about the Hawaiian pizza deep dive. We had an email from Barry as well, um, who says, I hope you've all got decent home desks by now. I think Matt Reynolds was the only outlier with his ironing board. So I think we might be almost all set with at least some semblance of of an office, even if it's in our own bedrooms. Um, He says, I will download the Apple Google app as it's not centralized, but will not touch the NHS X centralized one. He's referring obviously to the app that the NHS um, is planning to launch uh, that will allow people to sort of share their locations and all other lovely bits of information so that they can control the spread um, of the coronavirus and help people get back to normal. He says, what a poor decision to take the big data route as Tim Berners Lee could tell them big data is so 2010 databases get hacked i can only recommend that he follow the extensive tweeting that matt burgess has been doing about uh, contact tracing tracing apps um everything that is going on at the moment because he a really likes it when people pay attention to him on twitter and b is very informed in his uh, narrative about what is going on and there's a lot of it so thank you very much for that barry Uh, Finally, Ken V wrote in from Malaysia to say, excellent pub quiz, despite the fact that the questions were frankly impossible. Um, So that's uh, probably a a note for James to to (laughs) ease up on the difficulty next time for all of our (laughs) sakes. Uh, 
Noted. He has been playing the piano while stuck indoors, and he says he started thinking that there a he started thinking that there are a finite set of keys on the keyboard, and therefore there are a finite number of unique melodies. He's done some research, and he has found that for a melody of ten notes, there are seventy-five billion combinations. And he says that he should have plenty of time to find them all and copyright them all during the lockdown. Um, well, Ken, it's a really nice idea, but unfortunately, someone's already beaten you to it. So earlier this year, musicians Damien Real and Noah Rubin used an algorithm to procedurally generate every possible melody. Um, and they've released them under an open license so that anyone can use them. So this is in response to a lot of lawsuits we've been seeing lately in the music industry of, of people uh, suing people for kind of vague similarities between songs. Uh, and it's kind of a, an area that's been, been growing in popularity. So this is a response to that. They've, they've copyrighted every possible melody and they've released it on an open license. So in theory, this hasn't been tested in court yet, but in theory, you should be safe to use a melody without fear of being sued unless you've actually copied it in which case you know you're probably still liable i'm not a lawyer (laughs) (laughs) it's an excellent example of an algorithm doing some good in the world podcast at wired.co.uk we really do love hearing from you so do get in touch with anything that's on your mind and we'll try and read out as many of your emails as possible on each and every edition of the show thanks so much for listening as always we'll be back again next week take care of yourselves stay safe bye-bye bye